Pacific Stars and Stripes newspaper. Dateline, Camp Zama, Japan. November 22nd, 1953. Susan Rothschild, nine, daughter of Colonel and Mrs. Jacquard H. Rothschild, Chicago, Armed Forces, Far East Chemical Officer, was found unconscious in an empty drainage moat near here yesterday and was pronounced dead on arrival at the 8169th Army Hospital a few minutes later. The child was found by her father in an earthen moat about two or three feet deep but empty, behind the Sagamahara Fire Station at 6.10 p.m. and was rushed to the hospital. Investigation into the cause of death is being made at the Tokyo Army Hospital, where the body was taken for autopsy. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions expressed on this podcast are not professional ones. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. In that initial news report, it sounds like little Susan's death might be an accident. However, I suspect those on the scene know this is no accident. The next day's headline in the Stars and Stripes newspaper is, quote, military, comma, Japan, police, seek child strangler, unquote. Military police, local Japanese police, and the Military Criminal Investigation Division, military detectives. In the Army, it's CID, NCIS in the Navy, 
are all mobilized immediately after Susan is found. Stars and Stripes is the name of the newspaper produced for American troops. I grew up as an army brat and then married a career army officer, so I'm very familiar with Stars and Stripes. It's kind of the home away from home paper for troops and their families. There are stateside, Europe, Middle East, and Pacific editions. It purports to be an independent news source. I will say, from what I've seen over many years, they do good reporting. They have published stories, editorials, and exposés that no doubt did not please military brass. That said, Stars and Stripes is owned and operated by the U.S. Department of Defense. The murder is a big story in civilian newspapers worldwide as well. Most of them take their information from the Pacific Stars and Stripes. So that's the main source of the initial information in this podcast. There are a few civilian newspapers that do some local interviews, like with family and military friends. I'll put those links in the show notes. The murder location is the military family housing area at Camp Zama, Z-A-M-A, in, in occupied Japan. Camp Zama is still an active army post 25 miles south of Tokyo. It looks like now it's mainly a post for military intelligence people and probably some other secret stuff. The site was originally the military academy for the Japanese Imperial Army. The U.S. Army took it over after World War II. I went to high school in the late 60s, so the Vietnam era, and I had friends who attended Camp Zama American High School there. There's a little YouTube video Google Earth tour of the area out there if you are curious. It's a nice-sized post. Nowadays, it's also the headquarters for U.S. Armed Forces Japan. There is no high school on post at the time of the murder, but there is an elementary school there that Susan and other American children attend, about 300 students. To describe the scene, I'm doing some guessing. There are a few maps out there, but it's hard to tell the time period, and they're a little confusing. But I think that Susan lives in the officer's housing area, which I think is close to the airfield, northwest a little ways, maybe a couple of miles, about an eight-minute bike ride, is the Sagamahara housing area, which is for non-commissioned officers and enlisted personnel, lower-ranking personnel. The day of the murder, Susan rides her bike to a friend's house in the Sagamahara housing area. The ditch where she is found by her father is somewhere between her house and her friends in what the newspapers call a lightly wooded area. 
about a hundred feet from the path she would have taken. In the first news report, it says the drainage moat is empty. In the second report, it says the authorities have drained the ditch to look for clues. Another report later says there is water in the ditch up to 20 inches. So who knows about the water? My best guess is that the moat is a runoff ditch from a little creek or pond that was dug to prevent flooding. It's reported to be 150 feet long. The autopsy reports the cause of death as manual strangulation. Susan is not bound, but there is a gag stuffed in her mouth. There's no report about exactly what the gag is. If I had to guess, a white cloth handkerchief. My dad carried one all the time, mostly neatly folded, of course. There are bruises and scratches on Susan's face. Although she is found semi-nude, no evidence of rape is found. Susan is last seen leaving the home of her friend Patty Overton in the Sagamahara housing area. She is on her bicycle going toward the Rothschild's house, as we said, about an eight-minute bike ride away. She is on a path through a lightly wooded area along a fence bordering the housing area. Susan's mother, Phyllis, calls Sergeant Overton's house a few minutes before 5 p.m. to remind Susan to start home. It's November in Japan. It's nearly dark and very cold. At about 5.15 p.m., Colonel Jack Rothschild arrives at his quarters in the officer's housing area at Camp Zama. November 21, 1953 was a Saturday, but in those days the Army worked a six-day week, only Sundays off. I'm guessing a little on this, too, but here's what I think happened. Phyllis was concerned that Susan was overdue, even if it's only a few minutes. From my own experience, Army colonels in the 50s, when they got home, and Colonel Rothschild is getting home after a six-day work week, expect a nice hot supper by 1,600 hours, 6 p.m. sharp. At 5.15 p.m., Susan's dad probably wants to clean up a little, have a drink, and settle down to supper. Phyllis is cooking dinner and taking care of Susan's little brother, Ron. So, as it's getting close to dinner time, Phyllis asks her husband to go get Susan and maybe give her a little lecture about dawdling. Colonel Rothschild calls the quarters of Sergeant and Mrs. Clark S. Overton, Patty's parents, and is told that Susan left a little while ago. So, Rothschild and Sergeant Overton start out from their homes in opposite directions toward each other 
to look for Susan. We don't know exactly what time, but I would guess a little after 5.30 p.m. They find her bicycle near the path behind the post fire station. Listeners, the fire station is not shown on any maps I could find. So I'm guessing it's I don't know, halfway between the two housing areas. It's specifically called a fire station by the Stars and Stripes reporter. But I don't know if it's manned or just somewhere fire trucks are parked or if there's a phone or medical help or really anything. My guess is it's not like what we would call a fire station today. Sergeant Overton sets off to notify military police. My guess is running back to his house to call. Colonel Rothschild searches the nearby woods. Remember, it's dark, so I'm sure both he and Sergeant Overton left their houses with flashlights. There may be some street lights or lights around the perimeter of the camp, so it's probably not complete darkness, but the woods are dark. So I think Colonel Rothschild is searching with a flashlight. At 6.10 p.m., Colonel Rothschild finds Susan face down in the moat, lying in a few inches of water, nearly nude. At least we think it's in a few inches of water. Since she is still breathing, she has to be getting air somehow. So I think she's lying face down in the muddy ditch with her head turned to the side a little to get some air. Her father administers artificial respiration. Life-saving techniques were very different in the early 50s. Colonel Rothschild probably was doing the basic technique most prevalent at the time, which was to press on the lower chest to try to get the breathing going. But whatever first aid is administered at the scene, Susan is pronounced dead a little later at the Army Hospital a few miles away. Listeners, this leaves a small window of time for Susan's murder, certainly under an hour. We don't know exactly when Phyllis calls to remind Susan to come home, possibly as early as 445 or even right at 5 o'clock. So the murderer accosts Susan near the fire station where her bike is found. One newspaper says her bike is in a bike stand, but that's the only paper that says that. The others just say her bike is standing up, which could mean up against a tree or a building or freestanding with the bike's kickstand down. To many investigators, this indicates that she knew her killer and went willingly with him. That is, stops, parks her bike, walks off with the killer. Other investigators think the killer might not be known to Susan. Uh, 
He grabs her off her bike and carries her off, later coming back to stand the bike up. That doesn't make much sense to me. Why take the risk of coming back to position her bike? I believe Susan would have stopped whether she knew the killer or not. Being a well-brought-up officer's daughter like I was, any man in uniform, whether she knew them or not, could easily flag her down and she would be polite and stop her bike to talk with them. He may use some ruse like lost puppy or something like that, but at some point, Susan wants to start back home. He grabs her, stuffing the gag in. Then he carries her off into the woods. Her scarf is found a short distance off the path. Hair curlers are found farther into the woods. Susan's leather jacket is found near her body in the ditch. At some point, the murderer strangles Susan and puts her body into the ditch, shoving her face down. She's apparently breathing when her father finds her, so if there is water in the ditch, somehow her face is positioned so that she is getting air. Whether the murderer intended to rape Susan is unclear. There are no details about the state of her clothing other than partially clad. It's possible clothing might come off in a struggle or while her body is dragged into the ditch, but I think it's more likely that the murderer removes her clothing and then is interrupted somehow before he can complete whatever he intends. Probably he hears the men searching for Susan. This causes him to kill her and make his escape. Several days into the investigation, officials report that local Japanese police are providing assistance in the search for the killer in what they call, quote, one of the worst crimes in Japan involving an American, unquote. In fact, it's one of the only crimes against an American. It is not even eight years since the end of World War II. Japan has been continuously occupied by Allied troops ever since, but the people of Japan are remarkably respectful of Americans and their families. Listeners, my dad was stationed in Japan after the war. My mom and dad and I arrived on the island of Hokkaido just about the time this murder took place. Hokkaido is the island north of Honshu. Honshu's the big island where Tokyo and Camp Zama are located. My parents always spoke about how well treated they were by the people there. Side story from my mom, I was a little golden-haired toddler at the time. My first memories are being on the ship traveling to Japan. Mom was heavily pregnant with my little sister. Apparently, it was good luck to touch blonde hair. So whenever we went out, I would be swept away into the crowd, 
only to be returned smiling and chattering away hand in hand with some Japanese grandmother. Our maid Akiko warned my mom that would happen, so she didn't think anything of it. Looking back at my childhood, things that would terrify parents today were nothing to parents back in the 50s and 60s. Japanese suspects were looked into. For example, a former houseboy of the Rothschilds thought to possibly hold a grudge against the demanding colonel was checked out thoroughly by law enforcement, but he had a perfect alibi. My sense is that the authorities immediately suspected an American soldier did the murder. Due to the location and the timing, it's not hard for law enforcement to eliminate many of the men at Camp Zama, but not all. They get a break when two Japanese girls report being followed by an American soldier the afternoon of the murder. I'm not sure I put much stock in this story, but it does lead to an arrest. Several military suspects are put into a lineup, and the girls say that one of them might be the man they saw. The man they point out is Master Sergeant Maurice Leroy Schick, the chief of wardmasters at the Army Hospital at Camp Zama, the very hospital to which Susan was taken. He is taken in for intensive questioning. On November 28th, the day after Thanksgiving, the Stars and Stripes headline is, quote, Army Sergeant Admits Murdering Colonel's Child, unquote. Schick, the chief wardmaster of the hospital, stated to Army authorities that he had no intention of rape and did not plan the murder prior to meeting the slain girl in the wooded area in the Sagamahara housing area. He confessed Saturday he strangled Susan on November 21st because of an uncontrollable urge to kill. Susan was his victim just because she was there. He was held Sunday in an army stockade in Yokohama. Okay, I'm calling BS on some of this. I think he did intend to rape or at least molest the girl. He will say later that the strangling was enough to satisfy his sexual urges. And there are murderers who do just strangle victims. The Boston Strangler is the most obvious example. However, for me, the fact that she's partially nude indicates that rape was the intention. The strangling, I think, is more likely to be the result of trying to subdue the victim or possibly the result of panic when he hears people coming. I believe that the murder of Susan 
was an impulse crime, mainly because of the tight timeline. However, I think the desire to murder a girl may have been with Sergeant Schick for some time. If he was the one following the Japanese girls, that could show he is at least fantasizing about such a crime. Unfortunately, Susan crossed his path at the wrong time in the wrong place. Master Sergeant Schick is a respected member of the Camp Zama military community. Many people express shock at his arrest. His commander thinks the phone call informing him of the arrest is a joke. He calls back to confirm after receiving the news. According to him, Schick was an exemplary soldier and family man. Maurice Schick and his wife, Jean, have been in Japan for a while. Him for a couple of years and Jean for about a year. Unable to have children, they are in the process of adopting two Japanese orphans named Melody Lynn and Mel Mary Ann, ages five and two. Schick reportedly dotes on the girls. Jean relates that the night of the murder, they had a quiet, uneventful dinner, played with the girls, and went to sleep. After the murder and the arrest, Colonel and Mrs. Mrs. Rothschild immediately go to the Schick home to console Jean, saying to reporters, quote, Mrs. Schick is a wonderful person, and the two girls have obviously been brought up in a warm and loving atmosphere. My husband and I feel that Sergeant Schick is a sick man, and we have no personal feeling of revenge or bitterness about what has transpired." Unquote. Maurice Schick is born the 24th of June, 1924, in a coal mining area of Pennsylvania, to Effie and Guy Schick. He is the fifth child of seven in the family. He's not a big guy, five foot nine and 180 pounds. Early in his teenage years, he shows signs of trouble. At the age of 16, he enlists in the Navy, but goes AWOL, absent without leave, and receives a dishonorable discharge. In 1944, he is drafted into the Army in spite of his past. It is wartime. He serves heroically in Europe and is badly wounded. While at home recovering, he meets Jean Irene Miller. As she tells the story, he drops one of his crutches on the street, she helps him pick it up, and he asks her to have coffee with him. They hit it off and are soon married near her home in West Virginia. In 1946, Schick is discharged from the Army with a 40% disability. There are reports that the discharge is at least partly due to psychiatric issues. 
My interpretation is that might be what was called battle fatigue in those days. Nowadays, we would probably say post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. There are reports too later that he had serious psychological issues and exhibited bizarre and violent behavior from time to time. I think we have to take these reports with a grain of salt because they do come after the murder when Schick's primary defense is insanity. Schick re-enlists in the Army in 1948, presumably doing well. He is a master sergeant, which is the second highest rank for non-commissioned officers in the Army, second only to the rank of sergeant major. At Camp Zama, he is the chief of ward masters at the sizable army hospital there. That assignment would be a prestigious one. He would be in charge of the non-medical support personnel within the hospital. Supplies, equipment, scheduling, records, training, a responsible supervisory administrative position. After his arrest for the for premeditated murder, Schick is sent to a military hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. His defense team signals immediately that their defense is insanity. There's no talk of him not being the murderer, like that the confession was coerced. I actually did think about that when the news article says he confessed after a long, intensive interrogation. However, in light of what happens later, I think if he had any claims of actual innocence, he would have voiced them. I believe he certainly committed the crime. The only question is his, is his sanity. At his court-martial in March 1954, the defense presents psychiatric testimony to support insanity. A Japanese psychiatrist testifies that under true serum, Schick revealed the murderers, the murderers of two girls in Europe during the war. I guess that is supposed to be proof of some kind of recurring insanity, not really sure where the defense was going with that. But nothing people say under so-called true serum is in any way reliable. The defense tries to involve the famous Menninger Clinic located in Topeka, Kansas. We've talked about the famous Menninger family of psychiatrists on another case. Long story short, they pioneered the idea that psychological illnesses can be treated in much the same way that physical illnesses can be treated. In the 50s and 60s, Dr. Carl Manninger became a crusader for treatment, not imprisonment, opining that many criminals, including violent ones, need intensive psychiatric care and can be rehabilitated. His book, The Crime of Punishment, title kind of says it all. 
was influential in prison reform circles of the day. The clinic offered to treat Schick in Topeka or at least send specialists to Japan to evaluate him. The Army is having none of this. Dr. William E. Meyer, member of the military psychiatric board that evaluates Schick for several weeks after the murder, testifies that Schick is not legally insane. As we've discussed at length in other cases, the standard for legal innocence by reason of insanity is a very difficult threshold to meet. It's no different in this case. Essentially, as far as the Army is concerned, Schick might be insane in some ways, but not to the point that he can't be held accountable for Susan's murder. He is found guilty on March 27, 1954, and the next day sentenced to death by hanging. He is sent to death row, which for the military is at the United States Disciplinary Barracks, the USDB, or just DB, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The DB of the 1950s is nicknamed the castle, and that is exactly what it brings to mind, big stone buildings and high walls. The original building was opened in 1875. The old building is no longer used to hold prisoners. A larger, more modern facility was built a few years ago. That building now houses male inmates from all services, either enlisted personnel with sentences over 10 years or commissioned officers. Death Row is still at Fort Leavenworth, as it was in Master Sergeant Schick's time there. The method of execution was hanging in the 50s. Currently, there are six inmates awaiting execution by lethal injection at the DB. Other military inmates are housed in stockades or brigs at various military installations. Female inmates are sent to the brig at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar near San Diego, California. There is a cemetery at Fort Leavenworth near the old DB with over 200 graves dating back to 1884 for inmates whose bodies were not claimed by relatives. 14 graves are in an area a little removed from the rest. The graves of 14 World War II German prisoners of war are located there. They were quietly hanged in 1945 at Fort Leavenworth for the murders of other German POWs thought to be collaborators with the Americans. The building where the hangings took place is reputed to be haunted. Kendall Gott, senior historian at Fort Leavenworth, talked about the executions with the Lawrence Journal World reporter Mike Belt in 2008, quote, The German soldiers were very composed and resigned to their fate. There was no pleading. There was no sign of cowardice. 
They marched in a precision manner and stood at attention. I have mixed feelings about these guys. If I was a POW and I knew someone was collaborating, I wouldn't hesitate to take them out. And I think most soldiers feel that way. On the other hand, if you get caught, you've got to pay the dues. Unquote. Schick's lawyers appeal to the Military Court of Appeals, but his conviction is upheld. So Schick awaits his hanging in Kansas, convicted of a heinous crime by anyone's standards. However, he does have supporters, an interesting mix. Of course, anti-death penalty attorneys would be expected to get involved. Interestingly, another group of supporters consists of high-ranking military officers. There is sympathy, even today, in the military for good soldiers who commit criminal offenses. The reasoning is that some soldiers are damaged profoundly by their wartime experiences. Their soul-crushing experience should be a mitigating factor when meeting out punishment. As Richard C. Dieter writes in a 2015 article at deathpenaltyinfo.org, the article is Battle Scars, Military Veterans and the Death Penalty. Quote, there are two reasons to reconsider imposing a punishment on veterans that is reserved for the very worst offenders. Number one, veterans have made a vital contribution to the safety of our country. Number two, many have experienced trauma that few others in society have ever encountered. Trauma that may have played a role in committing serious crimes. These considerations do not justify ignoring offenses committed by veterans, but should challenge the practice of sentencing veterans, especially with disabilities, to the traumatic conditions of death row, followed by execution at the hands of the government they have served. Unquote. Schick's supporters put together a case for clemency and appeal to the President of the United States, who at the time is retired five-star general and the revered leader of the victorious Allied campaign in Europe during World War II. In his last year of office, on March 25, 1960, Eisenhower acts, quote, Pursuant to the authority vested in me as President of the United States, the sentence to be put to death is hereby commuted to confinement at hard labor for the term of his natural life. This commutation of sentence is expressly made on the condition that the said Maurice L. Schick shall never have any rights, privileges, claims, or benefits arising under the parole and suspension or remission of sentence laws of the United States and the regulations promulgated thereunder, governing federal prisoners confined in any civilian or military penal institution, unquote. In other words, we're not going to hang you, 
but you're never getting out of prison because you strangled a nine-year-old girl to death. Sounds perfectly reasonable, but it was not enough for Schick's supporters. They press on to put together a case that will allow him to be eligible for parole. In the meantime, Schick is transferred from the DB at Fort Leavenworth to the federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, nearer to his family. The supporters of Schick submit two main arguments, ultimately all the way up to the Supreme Court in 1974. The first argument challenges the president's power to put the condition of without parole on his commutation because the sentence of life without parole is not part of the Uniformed Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, under which Schick was judged when he received his death sentence. At the time, the sentence of life without parole was not in the UCMJ, only death and life with parole. Had Schick not been sentenced to death, his sentence would have been life without the possibility of parole. The military changes the UCMJ in 1997 to add the possible sentence of life without parole for murder and other heinous crimes. So, Schick's attorneys argue that the president did not have the power to put the restriction of no parole on when he commuted Schick's death sentence. So the only thing he could do was commute to a sentence that was in the UCMJ. Now, to me, listeners, I know that the president can pretty much do what any, anything he wants to with those sentences when he decides to grant clemency. So for me, anything less than death would be okay for the president to do. Now, that's not what his lawyers are arguing, of course, but the Supreme Court agrees with me. They rule that there are no constitutional limits on the president's pardoning and clemency powers. So they shoot that argument down. In 1972, there is a landmark decision in the Furman v. Georgia case by the Supreme Court that stayed all existing death penalty sentences. The effect of the decision is that all people awaiting execution in the U.S. have their sentences commuted to life imprisonment. As a result, many states revamped their death penalty laws to ensure that the death sentence is applied more judiciously, thus overcoming the Supreme Court objections stated in Furman v. Georgia. So for their second argument, Schick's lawyers contend that had he still had a death sentence in 1972, 
his sentence would have been commuted to life with the possibility of parole, since that was what was in the UCMJ at the time. The Supreme Court rules that Furman v. Georgia applies to people under a death sentence in 1972, which Schick was not, ironically. The decision cannot be applied retroactively. So too bad, so sad, no parole for you, Sergeant Schick. However, all is not lost for our murderer. In 1976, on his way out of office, U.S. President Gerald Ford commutes the sentence to life with the possibility of parole, which Schick is later granted. I'm not sure exactly when he was granted parole, but in 1980, he marries Carol Cleeton in Palm Beach, Florida, where I don't think there are any prisons. There is a brief obituary for him in the Palm Beach Post in 2004. Listeners, I have wild speculation about this case for you. Is it possible that Master Sergeant Marie Schick didn't commit the murder of Susan Rothschild? Could someone else have done it? A different soldier, perhaps? The lineup when the Japanese girl identified Schick is questionable at best. Uniformed white American soldiers probably looked pretty much alike to most Japanese people. It could have been an American dependent. It could have been a Japanese worker there on post. Now, there aren't reports of similar crimes before or after, but it's an army post. People move in and out of army posts on a regular basis. Sergeant Schick had orders to leave in just a couple of months. So sure, it's possible the murderer was someone else. There are no witnesses and no scientific evidence. Honestly, the possibilities are endless. How about this? Colonel Rothschild find Susan off being a kid in the woods. He flies into a rage and chokes her. When he realizes what he's done, he tries to make it look like a sex crime, which in the 50s, no one would suspect him of. Knowing people will show up soon, he plays the panicked father pretending to give her artificial respiration. Okay, wildly speculative. Besides Schick's confession, the only evidence against him is the questionable lineup. When the two Japanese girls state he might have been the man who followed them. Even if they identified him as the right man, it doesn't prove much. It's a small post where people are often walking the same direction. His interrogation by military police, by their own reports, 
is an intensive one. It wouldn't have been a gentle questioning with bathroom and coffee and smoke breaks like today. Certainly, there was no defense counsel present. This is the 50s, Schick's in the army, and the army wants the murderer caught. Okay, again, not that I want to help murderers out, but in my opinion, our story would be an unsolved mystery had Schick just vehemently protested his innocence over and over and never confessed. His confession is the entire prosecution's case. So, my easy advice to remember, listeners, shut up and lawyer up. Now, all that said, I firmly believe he was guilty. Yes, the military investigators want to catch the murderer, and quickly. But they don't want to get the wrong guy and have another murder on their hands. And it's sad to say, but pinning the crime on a lower-ranking soldier would be preferable to the powers that be. I wonder if there isn't more to the story about what led them to Schick. In the show notes, I put a link to a blog written by a girl, well, woman in the blog, who records her reminiscences about being an army brat. She lived near Patty Overton, Susan's friend, and was old enough to remember news about the murder. She writes that she recognized Schick's picture in the Stars and Stripes after his arrest. As she tells it, he was in charge of student physicals at the Little American School at Camp Zama. That checks out, considering his job at the hospital. She remembers being creeped out by the way he looked at her. Interesting. I remember those physicals at school. They'd line us up and check our hearts and lungs and ears and eyes, and most memorable, give us shots. Most telling to me is that Schick never, even after he's long out of prison, claimed that he was innocent, only that he was insane. He was a free man for a long time. He could easily have said, and by the way, they got the wrong man. He never did that. As for the crime, I believe it was committed by Schick, who was a mentally damaged, depraved, psychopath pedophile. I even think it's entirely possible that he committed other murders. Maybe when the Japanese psychiatrist gave him truth serum, he told the truth about the murders of other little girls. He was capable of controlling himself and living a normal, even exemplary life, often 
for long periods of time. I'm sure the reports that he was heroic, considerate, and hardworking are true. He could be that person much of the time. There are murderers like this. However, he's also walking a psychological tightrope. He's a pedophile with violent fantasies, living in a war zone. Remember, the Korean War is going on at this time. I looked at when Shik arrived in Japan. He's been there just about two years, with Jean only there for a year. If they're leaving Camp Zama in January to go back to the States, that's a pretty short tour for military people overseas. Usually it's at least three years. I wonder if he's having some problems at work and the Army is sending him home early, maybe even to be kicked out. Honestly, when you look at his military record, he's in and out of the service a lot. To me, it looks a little spotty. For someone who's already unstable, pressure at work would be problematic. Plus, since I think he's a pedophile, the stress of being a good father to two little girls might be almost unbearable. Tragically, Susan encountered Sergeant Schick at just the moment when the pressure to control his urges was just too much. Susan Rothschild was a little red-headed nine-year-old schoolgirl when she was brutally murdered at Camp Zama, Japan in 1953. There is a brief obituary for her in the Chicago Tribune. Susan Rothschild, age nine, in Tokyo, Japan, darling daughter of Colonel Jacquard H. and Phyllis Rothschild, sister of Ronald, granddaughter of Gertrude Rothschild, and Jenny Dreben Mills. Young Susan was a beloved daughter and well-liked child, described as sweet and tomboyish. There are a few pictures of her in the newspapers, an especially touching one shows her with her little brother, Ron. They are both dressed in traditional Japanese clothing, with Susan smiling broadly, clutching a little fan. I couldn't find Susan on findagrave.com. She may have been buried in Japan or somewhere or cremated. There was a memorial service for her at the post chapel at Camp Zama. Colonel Rothschild was known as Jack. He was the son of German Jewish immigrants. The Rothschild name is a famous one. The renowned European Jewish banking family 
has a storied history. Even today, conspiracy theories about the family's power abound. There's so many Rothschilds in America that I didn't spend much time trying to make the genealogical connection. At any rate, Jack had a typical middle-class Jewish upbringing in the Midwest. He was born in Ohio in 1907 to Julius and Effie Rothschild. From an early age, he was an academic standout. He graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York in 1930. He later was a professor of chemistry there. In his very successful military career, he used this chemical expertise to excel as an officer in the Army Chemical Corps, ultimately rising to the rank of Brigadier General. Listeners, let me just say I find it odd, in my opinion, that a Jewish officer makes his military specialty chemical warfare. However, that's what he did. In 1938, Jack married Phyllis Mills, five years his junior. She related to friends that she had a crush on him in grade school when he was a friend of her older brother. After Susan's murder, Colonel and Mrs. Rothschild refused the Army's offer of a compassionate reassignment, preferring to complete the assignment in Japan. The pinnacle of Jack's career was the position of commanding general of the U.S. Chemical Corps Research and Development Command. He retired from active duty at the end of his tour at Camp Zama in 1957. In 1991, an unsettling article about the couple, written by Ellen Grant, appears in the Phoenix New Times. In retirement, Phyllis was an avid art collector, and Jack enjoyed regular tennis games. They lived in a luxury high-rise on ritzy Central Avenue in Phoenix, Arizona. On March 14, 1990, Jack played tennis with a good friend, Ken DeForest. Jack gave him a sealed envelope, not to be opened until the next day. Listeners, I wouldn't have made it to my car before I opened that envelope. But DeForest doesn't do that until the next day. The note reads, Dear Ken, Phyllis and I simultaneously ingested five grams of secobarbital each yesterday, sufficient to be lethal. We are at the Holiday Inn. Listeners, if you know Phoenix, it was the Park Central Holiday Inn, room 712. Imposing on an old trusted good friend, I would appreciate it if you would call the police. Have them meet you there and identify us. When there is no doubt of our deaths, please mail 
the enclosed letters. There were 75 letters addressed, stamped to friends and family around the world in the envelope. This is a lot to ask, and Phyllis and I appreciate it greatly. Our best love to Peggy and you. At the death scene, Jack and Phyllis were found in bed, holding hands. The letter to police read, We were 82 years and 77 years old, respectively. We were not depressed nor overly sick, though certainly not comfortable. We just determined we were not going to reach the state where serious illness or the general deterioration of old age was going to make us completely dependent upon others with the attendant loss of dignity and meaning of life. If society were humane enough to allow doctors to give permanent release to patients on request, listeners, again, they're Jewish, Doctors killing the infirm? Really? We would not have had to act before such great disability was a reality. Sorry to have caused you inconvenience. Listeners, he played tennis just that morning. Phyllis did suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, which is painful and crippling. But many people live long, active, happy lives in spite of it, even in the 1990s. I won't belabor this out of respect for the Rothschilds, but suffice it to say this would not be my choice. Surviving family members include their son, Ron, a city administrator in California, and his two teenage children. I couldn't find much at all about what happened to Jean Schick and the two little Japanese girls the Schicks were in the process of adopting. Jean and the girls received a great deal of sympathy in the press, and from the Rothschilds. In my experience, the military community tends to rally around wives and children in tragic situations. My guess would be that the commanders pull strings and had Jean and the girls, they were named Melody Lynn and Mary Ann, aged five and two, sent back home as quickly and quietly as possible. My hope is Jean raised the girls and they're still out there somewhere living wonderful lives in America. But there is no report of that that I could find. It appears that Jean remarried in 1961 to a Mr. Cannon, C-A-N-N-O-N, in West Virginia. According to Social Security records, she died in 1997 in West Virginia in the area where she grew up, Berkeley County. 
There is record of a West Virginia obituary for her on Ancestry.com, but I couldn't locate the text of the obituary obituary, or even a find-a-grave post. I was so hoping to find the obituary and have it list Survived by Daughters Melody and Marianne. So if you live in the area of Berkeley County, West Virginia, or you just want to do some digging, if you find out something about Jean Irene Miller Schick Cannon or the girls, please let me know and I'll update the listeners. The links to the sources used for this case are listed in the show notes. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review if you can figure out how to do that. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website prisoncitymurders.blu b-r-r-y that's blueberry with no e's in it dot net thank you so much for listening and until next time please don't murder anybody i don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars